A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Maurice O'Keefe. You're very welcome to Racing Reflections, the stories and memories told by Irish racing people. This selection of interviews with well-known personalities in the Irish thoroughbred horse racing industry, some of whom have now sadly passed away. They illustrate the passion that they had for the sport. And we start with Clem Magner. He was born in 1917 near Fermoy, And he recalls here leaving home when he was 22 with very little money in his pocket. But first he talks about some of the great horses that passed through his hands. I'm just outside at Boy and I'm with Clem Magner in this magnificent place. Straight through all the way. So you converted all these pla- the, the stables into uh, to, uh, 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 living quarters. Yeah. Oh, this, this is lovely, and you have the fire lighting and all, yes? Well, it's so bloody cold today, very cold. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, look at these lovely photographs you have on the, on the windowsill here. That's a great photograph, that one. Those horses won 49 races between them. You might remember Teapot, he won 16 races. Overshadow won the Irish Grand National. He's the only horse that ran in the English Grand National. Yeah. And um, finished fourth. Ten days later, he won the Irish Grand National. My no horse ever ran ten days after going around the entry. And that's Prince of Devon. He won 19 races. The tradition was to leave the farm to the oldest son. But you see, he had the business in town. He had all the other businesses. But uh, uh, my eldest brother actually got everything uh, eventually. That was Tom Magner. And uh, he's John's father, the cool monster now. And then my brother Paddy was a redemptive priest, so he didn't want anything. And then my brother Michael was a doctor. And then they had three sisters. And then he said he'd divide the farm. So I said, no, boss, I'm, I'm not going to... He wanted to divide the stable yard. Well, I couldn't divide the stable yard with anybody because I wanted to rule the roost when, when it came to horses. And my brother Tom, uh, he wasn't that sort. He wasn't into horses as, as I was. He was into more business and games and good tennis player and good golfer and everything. So uh, I said to him there then uh, one day, I said, boss, I'll give you 12 months notice so if I'm not getting, uh, if I'm not getting that in writing. He said, okay. 12 months was up. And I went, uh, no son of my father that morning and I had... uh, my bicycle and my little attache case, whatever it was. And I went down to the farm to him and he was in the, the the tack room down there. So I went into him and I asked him for a few pounds. All I had was 30 shillings. So he said he wouldn't give me any money. So I said, OK, and I said goodbye to him. I never, never fell out with him. And I, was, I never had any any 
ill feeling against them. You know, he wanted to do things his way. I wanted to do things my way, and that was it. So, uh, a sister of mine lived in Fromoy at the time, so I called into her while I was waiting to get on the train to go to Limerick Junction races. And to go to Limerick Junction races, I had to go to Mallow, change trains in Mallow and go to Limerick Junction. So when I got to the station, there used to be a flagman in the the last carriage, you know, that would win, wave the flag and then the train would pull out. So I went down to him and I told him I had no money and I said, I want to go to the Limerick Junction races and have a bicycle and a case. Oh, he says, hop in there. Really? So uh, I hopped in there and got to Mallow and the same thing in Mallow on to Limerick Junction. Yeah. And I got in free into the races. No, I can't remember how I got in free, but I got in free anyway. So I bought my, got my uh, train then to Dublin. And between going from one carriage to another, I was able to avoid the ticket. <laughs> well, I knew qu- quite a few of the of the of the the, the racing crowd, and I was friendly with the. With a, a bookmaker called Paddy Meehan, uh, sitting down with him and going into the lavatory and going back out into another gallery somewhere else, I was able to get to Dublin free. And the Dolphin Hotel at that time, I was there three years, seven and six bed and breakfast. Kevin Prendergast, the son of the legendary Darkey. First of all, can I talk to you about your early days growing up? Uh, memories of growing up, yeah. I uh, went to school, uh, the National School in Athai, until it, from the age of five to ten. And uh, then went to Newbridge College from that till I was 15. And uh, went from there to Rockwell, which I finished my schooling in. And uh, left Rockwell when I was 18. My father lived in Newbridge, uh, in Cadeen, which is a hotel now. But uh, prior to that, uh, he was in Australia for some time where I was born. And... uh, Who did he work for in Australia? uh, He was with... um, Oh, his name... But it was during the Depression he left here. It was June uh, the 19, 1930. And he came back here in thirty two. the year of... I think it was the year of the Eucharistic Congress. And uh, I think we, there was a, as big a recession then as there is now. Mm-hmm. Well, it was the economic war, wasn't it? That's that right. Time? That's right. And um, I was born in Australia in on the 5th of July, 1932, at a place called Caulfield, which is... Uh, well known to race scores, it's uh, one of the main tracks in in Victoria. And how many of you? How many brothers? Uh, one brother and two sisters. My brother Paddy, he he was in Canada for quite some time, and he has had a license for oh, forty years, and was quite successful. Mm-hmm. But uh, neither of us were quite in the same success sphere as our father, okay. who probably was the first. Irish trainer to break the barrier on the flat in England as he headed the list three times in a row. Imagine, yeah. I, I mean, that was a great achievement. Well, I mean, uh, uh, what do you got? Travel then was, you had to travel by train and you had to travel by horse box or horse float yeah. and to get to from A to B. And uh, most of the horses were Irish bred. But was there always... Uh, Racing, uh, going back. Oh yeah, my grandfather. His father was uh, what do you call it? Well-known horseman, and uh, years back, what do you call it? Um, when they used to have to walk the horses to meet, and he had a old mare called Brown Bess, and I think she won uh, a couple of Cunningham Cups in Punchestown. Yeah, and uh, he was. Um, he actually uh, broke a lot of horses for uh, to be for the British Army. What was your grandfather's name? Paddy. First name, Paddy as well. Yeah, PJ, yeah. He broke horses 
that were forward that used to be sold by I think a man called White to the British Army and there were troopers they called them troopers he used to break troopers yeah and train train had had a trainer's license trained the odd horse but basically it was my father that really sort of revolutionised Irish flat racing any of your uncles get involved my uncle was a, one of the leading jockeys in England MC when he retired he worked for my father that was in 1942 he was riding up till about 1937-38 were you thinking of starting off on your own or? well I always had the idea that I was going to train myself uh, it was always in my mind and uh, in 1963 I got a licence where did you start? I started just down the road here uh, Friarstown with uh, two horses and uh we had, I think, ten boxes. And we battled for about six or eight, maybe a year, to get a few more. And then we started building. And then I was lucky enough to run into an American lady called uh, Mrs. Tippett. And uh, she bought a place um, that my brother's in now, uh, Meletta Mil- Lodge. And... Uh, I bought the place for her and we installed, uh, I think, 20 horses from America that had come from the track from Charlie Whittingham, who was uh, a legend in America and who I, whom I had met. And uh, I went down to uh, a farm in Virginia called Longotlan or Longolan. And uh, we looked up all these horses and most of them were back from the track uh, with all sorts of ailments and... Uh, so she shipped 20 of them into Shannon and we collected them there and uh, did, they were very successful we did very well with them and uh, basically she gave me a good start yes and then we built Friarstown and uh, she and I parted company and um, here we are well, you were but that was a very fortuitous meeting very 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 lucky yeah. lucky enough she had had a horse how I met her first, she had a, a, an animal called Italian Mist that was invited to run in the International Laurel. And I took her out, and unfortunately she got injured at the track in Laurel. And uh, I went down to uh, her place in Virginia, and we hit it off pretty good. Yeah. And uh, th- hence I got the horses uh, to train her. But prior to that, you you were fortunate with another horse. The very first horse that you took out, uh, I think your father was, um, uh, I was just listening to the story before I came in here now. Your father had a horse that he particularly didn't, uh, that he was getting rid of. Oh yeah, we, bought, took we, we, we took it off and I think called Snob Hill. And a friend of mine, a fellow called Eric Cole, who lives in Carlo, Ballybar, he was very friendly with my father, so... We actually uh, got her for the take on the way. And uh, Cole, Eric, took her down. And uh, my grandfather was quite a knowledgeable man about horses with injuries. And he said, I can fix that for a while anyway. So he did a job on her anyway. And we put her in training with Charlie McCartan. Where up, was Charlie? Charlie was up in Meath, who I rode for him for 25 years. And uh, who was a great friend of mine. And... Uh, we actually, Charlie said that she'd win the Grattan Cup, which was a four-year-old race at uh, Navan. And uh, anyway, she actually beat an animal called Height of Fashion that became very famous afterwards. Right. She was runner-up to Arkell in the National. Oh, yes, that's right. Height of Fashion. Yeah. She was trained then by a chap called Tom Lacey. Yeah. And you rode that horse to victory? Yes, Snob Hill. And she won very, I think she beat, she won 10 lengths. And uh, we bred, we got a nomination to a horse called Bosa Brewer off a good friend of mine, uh, Mr. McNaughton. And uh, she bred a horse called um, Promener. Okay. Promener was his name. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to buy a horse by Promener called Prominent King that won the Irish champion hurdle. And was third in a triumph. And he won an Irish Cesar, which is, well, he was quite a good horse. By the same Cesar. 
he didn't get too many uh, top class stars, but he got one good filly in France. But outside that, his um, progeny were very, very poor. And things were going very well for you. You know, you were obviously well. Things were ju- things yeah. were just happening, and what he got, and uh, got the rub of the green a few times, and uh, what yeah. he got, it, 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 we're still getting rub of the green to be here, yeah. sort of many moons later. Marguerite Weld, better known to her friends as Gita, was born in 1915. And here she talks about the first time that she entered a horse in the Washington International Race. And she's prompted by her son, Dermot. Your knowledge of breeding horses, training horses. My father. My father, completely. It all came from your dad? Yes. Although, strangely enough, his father wasn't particularly interested. But then on my mother's side, mm. my step-uncle would have been very clean on horses. When you were uh, at the Phoenix Park, uh, it, yeah. it was an ideal place for for training horses. And Oh, yes. Oh, there were a lot of people training there then. Willie Byrne was training. Maxwell Arnott. When when a horse was doing well in this country then, yes. um, would you place him at a race outside of the country? Oh, and, yes, and if it was good enough. Barney yeah. Fox, you went was to the Washington one. International. He was the I went ever. to America with it, yeah. which is the Washington International. First ever Irish horse in 1963 to the first ever international horse race was the Washington, D.C. International, Yeah, 1963. And my mother and father had a horse. Uh, called Farney Fox, who represented Ireland, and Tommy Burns rode him. Oh, I see. There's yeah. a picture of him over there. Yeah. Farney Fox. And and that particular um, uh, time, um, how, how did you manage? I mean, the, the horse would go in the boat rather than in in, in plane, of course. No, oh, he to, flew to America. Oh, to, oh, for America. Flew, at, at that oh, time. flew to America, he flew yes. Shannon, he flew Shannon, Shannon Baltimore, interesting. yeah. yeah. Shannon to Baltimore. Oh, yes. And yes. Why, why Baltimore now? I, that's yeah. where the yeah. cargo plane went to Baltimore. Yeah. He, he, was, to, he was going to race at Laurel Park, which is beside Washington, D.C. Hence the reason that on that particular time, the plane went out of Shannon from Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. And he was the first ever Irish horse, of course, to represent Ireland in the first ever international horse race. And that was in 1963 in Laurel Park in Maryland. And we loaded him. He had to travel down to Cork, you know, down to, yeah. to be loaded to Shannon. Yeah. I remember going down. You were brought yeah, down to, but for the loading. Yeah. But tell me that that uh, um, occasion when you you travelled and, and you arrived over. Oh, we didn't go with it. No. Oh, did oh, you stay We only went down oh, to Shannon. Oh, yeah, she no. couldn't leave all the horses. Yeah. No, see, my father and the owner, Matt Donnelly, and they went over. Tommy yeah. Burns went to ride the, the horse. Jockey. The jockey. They went. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a great occasion, of course. Um, interesting, uh, an American horse, Bald Eagle, won the race. But what was interesting was the Russian horses yeah. uh, had been, it was an international world race, the first ever of them. And the Russian horses ran very well. And... Um, I think one ran third of, I stand corrected where they finished. One was third, I think, and the other was fifth. But I remember Tommy Burns said that only we finished, we finished fourth. But he thought we'd have been very close only for one of the Russian horses uh, interfered with him off the home turn or we might even have won. So, uh, but the two Russian horses ran well. And uh, it was very important because at the time, it was the time of the Bay of Pigs and the danger of a world war between America and Russia. Oh, yeah. And it was a tremendous feat by the manager, the president of Laurel Park, John DiShaparo, yeah. to manage to get the two Russian horses to come to race in the United States yeah. in November of that year because everybody was expecting a third world war between the United States and Russia over the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's right. So to get these horses to come uh, owned, by the, owned by Russia to race in the United States was a huge diplomatic achievement for Shapiro. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, very soon after that, the um, the worries of a third world war uh, ended and uh, the Cuban crisis got sorted out. Yeah. But uh, your memory um, 
of that occasion. Uh, th there wasn't television in those days. No. So how did you get word home that you had won? Michael O'Hare did a commentary. We heard it on the commentary. Oh, but the, yes. the, the, hours, the hours, you see, for America and here are so different. And it was, I think for spring, wasn't it? Yes. It was November. No, was it November? Don't be fair, though. November. Mm. Yes. Well, all I remember about it was a lot of people must have been watching to hear yes. it, as well as ourselves. And yes, it was November, and I was coming out from mass, knowing it all and having heard it. Mm. And uh, I remember a, a talk. I think it was milk. Lorry was coming up as I came out the church gate, driving out. And the man let down the window and shouted into me, well done in America, well done with Barney Fox. I thought it was very good that he knew already, you see, and was so glad. And so uh, word got around word got very around quickly. quickly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't that great? It I mean, was, uh, it was, <laughs> yes. And it was kind of, you know, kind of excitement of of achievement and it winning. It was, and, yes, and winning in America yeah, was a big and, thing. And yeah. that helped your business to grow too, obviously. Oh, yes, I'm sure. Yeah. But, but he, you see, would have been well known that horse had won well mm -hmm. Ireland and England. They knew him, probably backing him and everything. Fancy O'Brien, born in 1929 in Churchtown in North Cork recalls here his early days growing up there and he talks about his brother Vincent. Having that pony as a, as a young lad, it, it was everything to you. And, and oh, yeah. yeah. And, and just an ordinary pony wouldn't do. He'd have to buy a flash one and a really good one, you know. Yeah. So when I went hunting, I could lead that hunt, you know. There'd be no problem here. Yeah. So I started very young, being a horseman. And and is, you joined the local hunt. I hunted with the Johalla Hounds, which yes. were in the main packs in Ireland. Did you? Yes. My goodness! So you knew the O'Mara brothers. So. I did, of course. Yes. Yeah. Uh, when you were uh, those hunt, uh, I mean, that got you into to uh, you know jumping over those ditches. Oh, and I'm sure. I was born jumping ditches. Vincent, now before he became a proper trainer. He, my father would have a, a lot of riding horses for pleasure riding horses and for hunters. Yeah. And one of the main things was that there was eight men there in the yards. I remember he had eight, my father had eight men. And Vincent would saddle up and bring six of them. In cross country, as far as you could see, in those days, there was no one stopped you, no one bothered. And there was no bad wire or any stuff like that. So you just went straight on and had made your own hunt. <laughs> and that would be excellent training then, wouldn't it? Oh, wonderful. Wonderful training for both the horses and the riders. That's right, yeah. Yes. And and so very quickly, uh, when you finished your your uh, boarding school days. Yes. Uh, did you come come back to work in the farm? Did you come into the farm then? I came back to the house, Vincent, yeah, to the horses. And you, wor you worked for Vincent then at this stage? Yes. And uh, I started riding straight away. Grace riding. And Vincent at that stage, uh, he had built up the... Oh, the, he, had, the he, he had built up his stable of horses. Yeah. One was like, yeah. And was he, at that stage, did he start training horses for other people or? Uh, yes, that, that. Who were his customers in those early days? The, the best customer was a man called Vickerman, that one caught his rake. Yeah. Uh, he was his first real big one. Apart from that, there were a few farmers and things that sent him horses that, any horses he got, he did well with, so that it wasn't long till he filled the place up. And then you see, the place was owned by my stepbrothers. So we know we, we had no acre in my family, second family. 
And how was your your brother Vincent operating? Was he was he, he was renting the land? Renting it. He was paying my stepbrother for it. My. And for the yard, he was giving him something too. Yeah. But he was successful. Uh, and, and that was the whole idea. Uh, the whole idea was betting and gambling. That's in the smallest way. But there was one thing. There was no such thing as losing. We wouldn't back them unless they were going to win. And they won. And Vincent amassed something like... 18,000, 19,000. And they had to move out of the family place because my other brother, Donald, eldest brother, owned it and he wanted us out. So we, I went around with Vincent around the country. My brother Dermot was in the army at the time. And um, we drove into Ballydoyle, the two of us, and driving up the avenue and looking at it and everything else, I said to him, I think this is the place. And he said, yeah. Jacqueline O'Brien, the wife of Vincent O'Brien, was born in 1926. And she recalls here Vincent's hard work in transforming Belle Dial in 1951 into a training facility. And then she goes on to talk about the time that Vincent lost his trainer's license in 1960. Oh, this was a huge, yeah. Vince's was a huge investment. Mm. And it was, it was an investment that was unceasing as well. Yeah. You know, he never stopped making things or making new gallops or putting up new buildings. You know, he, he never was satisfied with what he had. It was always something better was round the corner that he'd like to do. He wasn't somebody who sat back and said, that's that. Was he very restless? Um, he, he was a bit restless, all right. He, well, he was aspiring all the time to better things. He, yeah. he wanted all the time to do things better than they were done now. Yeah. Um, and he didn't take any notice much of what anybody else did. He only thought... I think as long as I remember... I think I only ever remember Vincent going into another trainer's yard once in Ireland, and that was Mickey Rogers, and once in England, and that was uh, Colonel uh, Cecil Boyd Rochford. He, he never wanted to see what another trainer was doing. He had no interest in what another trainer was doing. He never... Well, that's very interesting. Mm. So he had his own technique and his own well, idea, well, yes, way Yes, he had his own things. ideas, but he had no interest in what anyone else was doing. Like most yeah. trainers are looking all the time to see what other... You know, to yeah. see how you can get better from other people's yeah. ideas. But he never had much interest in that. Yeah. Did you find yourself dealing directly with the uh, with the staff with the with the, um, the stable hand? N- not with the staff, mm. no, n- no, not so much. No, he always had a sort of a um, he always well. There was always Vincent and Dermot, and they dealt with the staff. No, I inter- didn't interfere there because they would have all of they would have all thought I was very ignorant anyhow, and they probably wouldn't have appreciated my interference. Mm. I- I'm sure they wouldn't. Yeah. No, I didn't. I never. Um, Interfered much in the in the in the running of anything on the horse side. I just helped him, and and I think in a lot of ways he used me as a sounding board. He would say, "This is what I think I'll do," and then I would say, "Okay, you know," and then listen, and then I'd say, "Maybe it would be better to do something else," and he would examine that, and then he would do what he thought in the first place. But you know, he didn't talk easily to people, and so. Um, as I was there, and and you know, he used me a lot. I think as a sounding board for what he wanted to do, but he didn't take any notice of what I said. Yeah, I, I, you know, he had a lot of ups and downs in his life as well. I mean, he certainly it, did. Yes, yes. Um, I suppose there's one particular uh, situation that uh, just comes to mind: the mm-hmm. time that he lost his license. Um, yes. Uh, how, how terrible was that? That was absolutely appalling because. Um, this horse was in a, a, a small race um, at the Curra, and we just got the letter at breakfast saying that he had been, that they had found he'd been doped, and that would Vincent appear in 10 days or something. And then we got a message to say, don't say anything about it, which, so therefore we didn't say anything about it. But then, um, so then he, he went to the 
stewards, although the, the horse had been in the protection of the curry yard where they had neglected to put a night watchman, so all the gates were open. So we thought somebody had got at the horse, which was the thing we thought, until we um, went further in, into the case and and we found that when we went to some experts, starting off with the, one of the people at Glaxo, Glaxo Klein is Glaxo, yeah. and and they said, but this is not a certificate of dope at all. It had that they had found one five hundredth of a methylamphetamine, a substance resembling. No, they found one one five hundredth of a gram of a substance resembling methylamphetamine. Well, apparently at that stage, it wasn't possible to isolate a one five hundredth of a gram. And the New York Jockey Club said that, the French Jockey Club said that, the English Jockey Club said that. It wasn't possible, not, and not known to science. And you can't find a substance resembling something. Right. You have to find a substance, you know. Yeah. You. But the stewards would take no notice of anything. They just simply said, we've made our decision, we can't go back on it, or racing will be disgraced. So, so we had this booklet with with um, with letters, opinions. New York Jockey Club, French Jockey Club, English, um, the forensic scientists who did all them, everybody, and still they wouldn't listen. Yeah, they just wouldn't listen. So we took them to court, and that was the one useful thing I did for Vincent, because he never would have trained again. Was he was he really he was taken by that? Much? We were told to leave our house. We had to leave our house. Yeah. And we were out of the house for I don't know, about six months and then Joe McGrath said we could come back and live in the house provided he didn't walk into the yard. And he'd done absolutely nothing. So that was terrible. And Sonia Rogers, the wife of Tim Rogers, who was well known in the bloodstock business. She spoke here about the time that she took over after he died. So um, finding the bloodline, that was important, was it? You know, it, making sure, I mean, this was, it, this was obviously where the business was, was leading to and, yes. and why it was successful, was finding the right, right stallion yes, all the he, time. Yes, he always found the right stallions. And then if they weren't going to be completely successful... They were sold on. Um, we saw the foals. We probably saw the yearlings. And if he thought they weren't going to make it, they were off to Japan or whatever. And they paid us three times the amount that we had paid for them. So all the people who'd put up the money. It was all syndicates then. None of us owned a horse like they do now. I mean, nowadays they all own the stallions outright. The You know, Cheverly Park, um, Coolmore... Um, landways, all these people they own their own stallions, stallions yeah. we couldn't we didn't have the money, everything was syndicates and it was much harder work because you had 40 shareholders and you covered 45 mares, you did not cover 250 mares yes um, and that's what but remember we didn't um, we didn't have scanners and all this sort of thing, it was all quite different we couldn't as we hadn't got scanners, we didn't know whether they were in foal or not. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, you know, uh, we we couldn't cover so many mares. We mm. covered 45 mares. That's mm. what a stallion had in those days. Um, and, uh, you know, life was co- quite different. You had far less animals to run for the horse. Yeah. Um, and also, you probably um, covered an awful lot of your own mares with your own horses. You mm-hmm. didn't go so far afield. Um, I think Tim was the first person also to start foal shares, which is another thing you probably um, know about. But he didn't start it for the reason we have them now. But explain what foal share is. A foal share yeah. is, is when um, somebody like me would have the mare, but I wouldn't be able to pay for... Um, 250,000 for a Galileo. So um, the uh, stallion owner would produce the the nomination and we would own half and half of the offspring. But 
Tim started this because of there were little farmers around who um, couldn't afford uh, or didn't know what to do with their mares, and so he would give them nominations to his. Um, but now, sadly, it's become quite a different thing, and you'll probably find that um, most there's very few people can afford the very expensive stallions. Yeah, they're what I call the W's, who are the Wertheimers and the um, uh, the Wildensteins and the you know all the all the people that like that who have lots of money, but otherwise people can't afford to pay that. And and ha- has that made the business uh, so different today as yes. to what it was then? Oh yes, completely different, absolutely, uh, utterly, and completely different. Um, who was keeping the accounts? What do you mean? Who was running? Who was running the financial side of it? Well, it was all run in the office. I mean, you know, oh, the office. Yes. I know, but was it Tim or was it yourself? Oh no, no, no. I didn't have no. Let's be completely understood. Okay. That when I first married Tim, he, I had absolutely nothing to do with the bloodstock business at all. Not at all to do with it. I was. Um, supposedly looking after. In those days, we had young assistants, masses of young assistants and learners, and they all lived in houses on the place or flats or something. And I was, my job was to see they had sheets and beds and rooms and they were all all right. And most of them hadn't been away from home. And and then I had two small children. And then we had all these rather smart people who used to come and stay. And I used to have to do the cooking and the everything else. So that was my job. No, I had absolutely nothing to do with. Um, I He used me sometimes for, uh, what does Mrs. Average Woman think of this horse or that horse? Or, And I went to sales, and but I had, no, I had absolutely nothing. So that's why it was fairly horrific to me when he died, because although I had a background of horses, I'd looked after my mother's son. I worked in the BBA. I didn't tell you that. I worked in the BBA for a year under a famous man called Bob- Bobinski who wrote very famous pedigree books and things. And he taught me a bit about pedigrees. And I worked there um, and learned how to do that. Uh, but apart from that, um, I hadn't... Um, I didn't have proper groundwork training um, as a stud, um, you know, in stud work. I mean, I'd never actually um, spent months foaling or mucking out or anything like that, which I always regret. I mean, I've seen how to do it since because I've been involved with it, but I never did it at at the ground level. Yes, I know. Yes, so your your job then was entertaining the the people who came here yes. as well as bringing up yes. the family and yes. looking after the staff. And yes, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah. So then, when he died, Valentine Lamb, who you just visited today, was one of the first people to come to lunch. Something called Julian Lloyd came to help me as assistant, and he said we have to have a press lunch. This is about two weeks after Tim died. And what, remember, what year did Tim die? Mm. What? Sorry, what year did Tim die? He died in 1984, 1st of January. Yeah. And remember, he was—he really was the forerunner of the Irish thoroughbred, in a way. You know, he—he he was the, he was the most important man in Europe, actually, at the time for having stallions. Mm. He had 14 stallions at the time. And he was, um, everybody looked to him for advice. Francis Flood, born in 1930 in Ballinure Grange Con. He spoke here about finding work for the first time with his neighbour, trainer Paddy Slater. And it was there that he learned first how to write. Where well, well, I'm living now, I'm here since about 1968. Or where were you before? And I would, I would, would be living up the road there, about a mile away from here now, where I was born and where all the family were born as well. And there's still a brother there at the moment. 
Uh, what's the name of that place? It, well, it's called uh, the Rocks Grange Con. Yeah. Yeah, Grange Con Rocks. Yeah. Oh, were there very many of you in in, in the family? There now? were eleven of us in the family. Where did you fit in? I fit in second last. My goodness. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what was it like being born into a big family like that in those days? Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very enjoyable now, you know, and things would have been pretty tough. But we were, we were lucky enough, like, and, yeah, we, 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 we survived pretty well now, you know. Now, your father, what was your father's first name? Tom. And he was working in the Land Commission. He was working in the Land Commission. He farmed a good bit as well. And uh, he always kept a horse, and you know, or, or a couple, and he he always raced them, and generally had one at Punchestown. Like that's what he lived for. Did that he? was his hobby. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, would he have gone hunting as well? No, he he, he didn't ride it. Never rode. No, no, he didn't. And uh, so you grew up uh, in the farm. Did, did, did you, uh, after your schooling, uh, did you go back to the farm to work? Or No, never really was fond of the farm. So I went down to Paddy Slater and I started riding out there. And uh, I, I was there for 20 years, I'd imagine. What age were you when you joined the state? Oh, I suppose it would have been 17 or 18, I think, when I, when I went down there. I used to do a little bit at home. Because we always kept a couple at home as well. And I did a little bit of riding at home, but not a lot. I didn't learn very very much, like, until I went down to Paddy. But, Francie, that was during the the war years, wasn't it? Or just the tail end of the war years? The tail end of the war years, yeah. yeah. Would it be, yeah. 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 Well, was it to to get a job in Slater's? I mean... Oh, yeah, I what? suppose you would be probably lucky to get a job, like, you know, and, like, there were people struggling and they were, they were lucky to have a job. How did you get the job? Oh, well, he would have been a neighbour of ours and we would have known him and was always a friend of my father's and used to come to visit him regular and so on like that. And I'm sure my father did a lot of turns for him as well. Yeah. You know, so that's how it happened. And then there was a man by the name of Paddy Powell who would be the grandfather of Anthony Powell, you would have remembered Anthony. Yeah. You remember killed in a car accident. Oh, yes. Well, he, he, he would have been there. He was a famous man, the, the, which would be the grandfather of Anthony's. He was yeah. called Paddy. And then he had a son, which was Paddy, which lived in Cacullin. He was a top flat jockey. Do you remember him now? Well, he, he was from your uh, generation. generation. Yeah, that's it. He would have been. Yeah, he would. And so, uh, tell me, what, what was... When you went there, um, what was your routine as as a young lad? Well, it's just starting to ride out, and uh, you know what I mean. Uh, and the horses would be running away with you, but you know we we, we got on the quiet ones and we learned and slowly improved. Yeah, and do a bit of hunting in that. Or oh, were you uh, doing other jobs in the same way? Were you? Part of of um, as a stable boy, were you? Yeah, I would have done a, would have done a fair share of that as well, but but not always full time though. Yeah. Yeah. So again, got a lucky break, and things seemed to go well for from there. You know. Tell me what your lucky break was. Can I? I just put that yeah. down there. Sorry. Uh, look, well, well, she was there for a while, and when you have one good, like he, uh, I, I got started off on a horse called uh, Prince of Cromhale. And he he, he 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 won a race in, in Listow, or sorry, Killarney, and that was the start. And I remember I rode two other winners the following week. You know, so it was from there on, things were going pretty good for me. Jockey Paddy Woods worked in Tom Draper's yard in North Dublin. He used to write out the legendary article each morning. And here he talks about the day that disaster struck. Is it because maybe you rode Arkle out every morning and day that, that, that you obviously knew how he was going and, and the way to handle Oh, you him. did, yeah. And the way he was improving. Yeah. I remember one day, uh, one particular day, I was right maybe on this one. We were, he was after doing to put up a few great performances. And I remember riding him one morning, and the oh my God, he went great! He went absolutely unbelievable, and um, 
he said to me when we came in, how is he? And I said, brilliant. I said, he's improved a bit. And I said, yeah, ten lengths. And he started to laugh and he said, couldn't be. So he's improved ten lengths and then you say that horse. He couldn't be. He said, so you wait and see. And I was spot on the next day. He said to me the next morning, geez, you were right about your man. How yeah. good is he, you know? That he, time he wasn't the full thing, but he kept improving, you know, every time. Yes. Yeah. He was with, brilliant. With, with the, the way he was trained. Yeah, then I was Ooh. with him then, of course, yeah. when he broke the pedal bone. At, I stayed there with, in Campton. I had to stay for the first two two weeks. I had to stay at the races with him, mm. slept in the box beside him, you know. And Oh, uh, did you know? Yeah. And he broke the pedal yeah. bone. He went lame in that famous day in the King George. It was a terrible foggy day, and... I think they should race the day before. That was my attitude about it anyway. And I mean, Willie Stevenson, the trainer in England, he said they should have raced too, but they put it off. And there was frost or something. He went and uh, he pulled up lame. Of course, he finished second, was on three legs in the King George. And um, we had Brahmin, and there was that man I was saying there, Ryan Price, he came over to see could he give us a hand when he was very lame. So they said they'd have to get him x-rays. So we got him into the horse ambulance and we brought him back down to the stable. We're hoping above hope that it was only something, you know. A strain or strain or something. So I had to wait with him that evening and uh, the vet came and they got some uh, out of a hospital, an x-ray thing. Right. And they brought it to him and they were a bit, I remember a bit nervous about a horse. I remember the same fellas that was x-raying. And I said, you've no problem with this at all. And we just got a bale of straw and Arkel put his foot up on the bale of straw on top of the x-ray. <laughs> and he, a man couldn't... He says, will he break everything into place? And I said, he won't. He'll do nothing. Yeah. He'll stand and he won't move. He'll take an x-ray. It'll be a lot easier than what we would. And they took the x-ray. Yeah. Do you, know, do you know what part in the race that... Uh, yes, I do. Happened. It was the second fence past the stands at... at, at uh, People didn't know when we knew at the time, because i tell you why. We walked the track. I walked the track. There was a man called Hyde. He was from Navin. He was the manager in the Kempton at the time, and his son's there. And I remember the next day or two, as I said, I stayed for two weeks. And I walked round the track, mm. looking to see what I could see. And down at the first ditch, past the stands, it was it sort of done with sods and the, the tow bar. And there was the mark where the horse's foot went right in under the tow bar. And I said, that's Arkel. That's where he caught it going up. He caught the ball and going up, caught oh, the yeah. board. That's where he broke the pedal bone. There's no doubt that was first hitch past the stands that's where he broke it. Without a doubt. you know. And I was saying to Pat after that I seen the mark. And he said, that would be about right. That's where he went lame, you know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, when the, you slept with Arkel there? That time, yeah, yeah. for two weeks. Yeah. I remember it was the funniest thing ever was. Uh, the vets came and I, of course I had to ring home. The vet said this horse has broken a pedal bone, you know. Well, how, how did Tom react? I don't know at the time because I tell you I was there and I rang home and I told, rang Mrs. Draper had left and came home and the Duchess. And I rang her and I told her said, the news is bad. So oh, it's a broken pedal bone. So you broke the news to... Oh, damn, yeah. yeah. I broke it. And there was a fella called Jim Cosgrave, or Maxi Cosgrave, or Jim Kavner, was a vet at the time. And they rang him, and they rang me back and said they'd be go back straight to England in the morning. They'd be there at whatever time, 10 o'clock or something. So I went to bed that night, put him left as funny as I could made him as comfortable as possible and the lads were there in Kempton Park and they came in to me the next morning very early you know and waking me or whatever well I was probably awake anyway and said Paddy you have to get out of here as quick as you can you want it out here yeah. and I said what's wrong and I thought it was some of the heart no he said there's not a lot of people here I peeped out the window. Oh my God! When I seen all the cars and all the cameramen and all on their stilts with the cameras and everything, so, Jesus! What's happening around here at all? Oh, he said, "You better get out." He didn't want to come in to take photographs of the horse and so. Say, no way! Can't do that. Yeah. 
I mean, I remember coming out and again people didn't know about it and they walked out and they were all shouting, can we just see, come over here and all like this and on. And I went over to the gate and I said, no, there's nobody can get in till Mrs. Draper is coming, the Duchess is coming and when she tell you to come in, you can come in, but I'm not letting anybody. Right, so you, you, you actually were protecting or oh yeah, yeah 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 and there was one fella at the time and that's a long time ago mm. and he called me one side whispered and said paddy if you let me in to take one picture says i'll give you 250 250 pound that time was a, a fortune now and i said you can give me 2500 and you don't still get in i can't i wouldn't do that number yeah. for any money so they came over then, they arrived over then and they looked and then they let some of them in to take the pictures and things of them, you know. Well, we've come to the end and I hope you enjoyed listening to the lives of Irish racing people. If you would like to listen to the full interviews, visit our website at irishlifeandlore.com. I'm Maurice O'Keefe and thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.